Hello and welcome to episode 30 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, bands, and strategies in modern. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and on the line from a couple miles northwest of me is the godfather, Dave Harbarger. You know what I saw a lot of in the last week? Hit me. Fireworks. Fireworks, baby. This episode's all about fireworks. Like those new fancy ones that are shaped like cowboy hats? What? Also with us in a triumphant return from his self-imposed exile, it's Zach Colhan. I'm glad to be back. It is thanks to my hard work and pursuance of the truth that we are where we are today. Offer my services at birthdays, graduations, bar mitzvahs. I too can make your banning dreams come true. Shane is out today, but we'll return next week or the week after or maybe never again. Stay tuned to find out. On this week's show, we break down the July 8th banned and restricted announcement and its implications on Modern. Then we dive into our picks to click from Core Set 20, also known as Leyline Masters. Finally, we wind down with a listener question. But first, let's housekeep. We're excited to shout out a few new patrons to join the Dive Down Nation last week. Greetings and thank you to Justin P., Zach N., and Alex L., this means we've reached our playmat goal. Woo woo. Hooray. I think we are reaching our goals faster than I really ever expected that we would. So this is, as always, truly humbling and uh, a surreal moment. And uh, as an update to our patrons, we expect to start shipping our first batch of thank you gifts, I think about when we return from Denver. So in the meantime, check out our Patreon page for pictures of the stuff we're designing for you, our fans. Yeah, I'm real excited to see the designs for the playmat come out. We have some ideas we floated around and passed back and forth, and I, I think what we're working on is going to be pretty special. All right, with all that out of the way, let's take it to Zach at the news desk. Zach, buddy, did you have fun this morning? Yeah, I mean, it's my first day back at work after vacation, so it was like, oh, you mean the ban? No, I meant vacation. Oh, but yeah. sure, let's talk about ban. That's fine. <laughs> I mean, this is huge, right? Like the, the menace we all feared. We talked about an episode dedicated to it that I chose to leave the tri-state area for. This is enormous, right? Yeah, it's enor- so enormous that the hours of watching I put into the Red Bull untapped event and notes that I wrote delving into Twitter has all been pushed aside by the fact that this morning, July 8th, Wizards of the Coast announced 20 minutes before they said they were going to that Bridge from Below was banned. I mean, think of what you did as archival work, right? Y- you decided to set aside time for... Uh... A moment in history before we are now blessed with the current period we are in. I certainly think that our last episode is a piece of of magic archive work that we just felt like we should do in order to commit that uh, commit that deck to the void. Yeah, it's going on the next Voyager disc, I hear, so aliens can listen to it as well. Oh man. So the the next gold disc is just gonna be like people saying hello in tons of different messages, the Vitruvian person the Fibonacci sequence and dive down episode 29. <laughs> the <laughs> the gack is back. I, for one, am pretty glad it was not faithless looting. I know a lot of people were talking about banning that, but part of me wonders whether they decided to keep altar of dementia around maybe on some level to save face. Cause it's such a new card. I mean, I think there's a lot of ins and outs with this. I mean, the scenarios basically that everybody was throwing around, right. Were uh, Banbridge, Banhogak. Ban 
uh, Altered Dementia, ban Faithless Looting. And then there are all the people who are kind of saying, uh, well, if we ban Faithless Looting, then we have to ban Ancient Stirrings. And then we have to look at Mox Opal and just like endless rounds of, of speculation kind of ensued from that. I do think personally that banning Bridge from low, Below was the cleanest and easiest solution to the whole thing. I mean, Bridge from Below is a card that, like we said last week, it does nothing other than broken stuff, essentially. It has no card text on it. It doesn't cost any mana to use it. And so, and it only appears in this one deck. So in some ways, as far as surgical strikes go, that makes a lot of sense. No, I totally agree with that. I Like, like we're talking about, if you ban certain other cards, it opens the floodgates for, or, or not even floodgates, discussion even of, well, if this, why not this? And either they respond and people go, that's not enough for me. Or, oh, well, if that, why not this? But with this, there's sort of no room for, well, what about this other card? Because there's no card that does exactly what this nonsense is, right? And it's big timing too, right? Like they have a they have a mythic championship coming up in two ish weeks at the end of the month, basically. Uh, I guess three weeks in Barcelona. Yeah, that is modern. Then after that, they have three modern GPs at the be- during the month of August in Minneapolis, Birmingham in the UK, and Las Vegas. Or and then in Indianapolis and Ghent, they have Team Modern in September. So there are actually five. Uh, GPs in a row or Magic Fest in a row that are have a focus on modern. So I think trying to clean this up now makes a ton of sense for Wizards and Channel Fireball and everybody who has to run these events. Do we know whether MC Barcelona is another open deck list test? Is I, that forever? I actually don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know if they've mentioned it yet or not. I think it might be forever, but... Oh, really? For, for Mythic Championships, I think it might be forever. Okay. So the reason I ask is because London Mulligan is an official rule now, and a lot of the events that we're going to see moving forward, I think are going to feel like more authentic tests of the London Mulligan than MC London was. But maybe that's not so the case at the MC level, because those are open deck lists, and it's a you know a unique caliber of players, and there's so many factors that are kind of being manipulated that i'm starting to wonder whether gp and mtgo data is really going to be and and scg for that matter is really going to be the gold standard for interpreting the meta moving forward i think it has to be just because like you said the caliber of player that is there is unique unto itself and not that good people don't play online of course they do but when you have a bunch of people who are hand selected and you can see open deck lists i don't think that's a good measurement tool for uh, the implement the implementation of a rule the way it'd be with london mulligan so like there could be a world where london mulligan's too good at the magic fest but isn't too good for lgs right yeah i mean i think london mulligan is here to stay for a very very long time God, so, so let's not let's not go down that particular path right now but i understand what you mean and uh, to be honest i think that the pro tour has always been a separate special kind of condition for especially when it comes to eternal formats the the metagame at the pro tours tend to be pretty distorted from what normal metagames are even at gps and certainly from fnms whereas with standard it tends to be much more kind of close to what people actually do and what they react to i mean that's not to mention just because of the caliber of player there's also the split format thing but Anyway, I think that we should uh, talk a little bit more about the impl- implications of the band that we uh, that we ha- are still kind of grappling with today. Yeah, so when they announced the band, Ian Duke published a pretty lengthy article explaining their decision and thought process. And although we're not going to read the whole article, because 
I'm sure many of you have. There are a couple snippets that I identified, which I think are very telling about what's happening in R&D and how they see the meta. So I'm going to read a couple of those, and then we're going to chat about them briefly. So the article starts from our data gathered through MTGO. The Bridgevine deck has shown to have a high overall win rate, fast wins, and few unfavorable matchups, forcing other decks to adopt especially high numbers of anti-graveyard cards to keep pace. So a lot of this article for me was trying to read between the lines and understand how they're seeing the meta. And the first thing I did when I read this sentence was basically infer that other decks that players were upset about, such as Is It Phoenix at the start of the year, didn't meet these conditions. Yeah, but maybe KCI did, right? Because in a, in a different way, I mean, KCI wasn't a graveyard deck, but you know, it's interesting to see what trips them to ban something as opposed to what doesn't. It's clearly something a little bit more than community outrage because there certainly was a lot of furor around Phoenix, like you said earlier in the year. And now, you know, it took only three and a half, four short weeks of Hogak before they were like, we got to do something. In, in my mind, it's much easier to draw a straight line from KCI to Hogak than it is from Hogak to Phoenix. And we've talked about this on the cast, whether or not Phoenix is a quote unquote fair deck. And we, that's, you know, that's a whole discussion, but I think everyone can agree that Hogak and KCI are inherently unfair decks, right? And it's the sort of thing where, you know, win rates aside, everything, there's a certain level of magic that's being played where there's weird timing windows, there's weird interactions on the stack where it's almost like you're playing a different format or a different version of the game than your opponent. And your opponent has to relearn how to play magic or, you know I'm saying, has to re reinvest themselves in the rules, especially niche rules, in order to play against you. And that's not a good way to be. Yeah, I think that's especially true when you see your opponent going off with Altar of Dementia and you're sitting there even with like counter spells and you're like, oh, there's just nothing I can do because they're interacting with the game on a level that is broken. Yeah, and I think the... The other thing, Zach, I'm not sure how much you listened to last week's episode or if you just kind of immediately deleted it when you saw what it was about. No, of course I listened to it. Come on, guys. <laughs> but, um, you know, the one thing that I think fits in here is that it was, I don't think any of the three of us that piloted the deck thought it was even fun to play, even when we were winning. You know, so I think that that's pretty telling as far as just the way that it feels. You know, that's a qualitative thing, and Wizards was operating off of quantitative data, but, um, not being fun for anybody certainly is a big factor. Right. If you have to apologize to your opponents or feel like you want to, that's bad. You know, I never apologized when I was playing Storm. Maybe, <laughs> no I, should have, maybe I should have, but... <laughs> I usually would apologize while, while playing Storm because I would ask my opponents to keep count of my Storm count for me. Oh, that's... <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I'm you to do this for me. <laughs> it's the worst flex. Can you count how much mana I'm about to make? <laughs> Do you, oh, by the way, did you guys see that they updated the competitive rules today as well? And you're not allowed to use dice to to count mana in your mana pool anymore. Just a hot tip. We'll come back to that some other time, but what? worth googling. Yeah, you have Dave, to do, This is literally the first time hearing that. Wow. You have to do it on paper. Ooh. So, um, ooh, ooh. look it up, everybody. Berries? No, yeah, no, you can't use glass beads. You have to use. Um, it's a very complex rule change that they that they made. But the the net that I read from Ricky Hayashi was you have to. Uh, you have to use paper basically to keep track of your mana pool now. All right. So dive down nation, have a little bowl of snacks next to you. I'm going to suggest raspberries and blueberries for red and blue mana. And then when you use it, just go ahead and eat it. I think that would be a comp rel rules violation now. Oh my goodness. Okay. We'll talk off mic. 
All right, so a couple other excerpts from Ian's article. He writes, In the case of Hogak Bridgevine, its initial overall win rate on MTGO was over 60%. In recent weeks, Bridgevine has been the most played modern deck on Magic Online as, and has earned over three times as many 5-0 league trophies as the next most deck has. That's absurd. Yeah, that that is bananas i don't know if i've ever seen a data point like that shared before they've never shared anything like that i think you're right it has only two unfavorable matchups among the other 10 most played decks and has a high win rate against lesser played rogue decks especially telling us its game one win rate of roughly 66 percent do we want to take a guess on what the two unfavorable matchups are so my guess is one of them is blue white and is the other john do you think or maybe etron I think it's probably Etron and Blue White Control would be my guess too. Just because Etron has Chalice and uh, Blue White has main deck surgicals as well as Rest in Peace. By the way, the one data point we have as far as Etron, since we're not going to do a deep dive on tournaments this weekend, it was eight of the top 16 decks were Eldrazi Tron, including three of the top eight. I think that's right. And there were three Hogak decks also in the top 16. So 11 of the top 16 were, were, uh, either Chalice decks gunning for Hogak or um, Hogak itself. That challenge, by the way, was won by humans, by uh, uh, Gaul Schlesinger, a former guest. Just a Gaul. All right, back to Ian Duke. He writes, The interaction between Hogak and Altar of Dementia should become more about stocking the graveyard for value over multiple turns rather than completing a one-turn win combo. This should open additional avenues for other decks to interact via creature combat, creature removal, or graveyard removal, and may also force graveyard decks to include more interactive cards, further slowing themselves down. So I'm reading this and I'm hearing them say, we think the deck is going to continue to exist, just in a more fair axis. Yeah. I mean, what do you think about that, Zach? Honestly, I love hearing that. It's happened in Magic, and it happens a lot in other games. Hearthstone comes to mind, for example, where a deck is very dominant, and they just neuter it completely. Where the deck, all the good pieces are either changed or banned, where even the archetype is no longer viable because they don't... Because either, you know, bad memory associated with it, or, you know, it's bad on camera, etc. So I like that, even though, obviously, this deck was oppressive, and it was very bad for the meta, the meta was warping around it. We don't think that Vegivine is too broken of a card. And Hogak, you know, we can talk about, but other pieces of the deck I think are totally fine. And I think not removing that style of play entirely is smart and I prove. I think it's a really weird kind of situation to go into because now we're going to get into this thing where what's the best dredge deck? Is it a sure. deck that does not even have any dredge cards in it? Or is it actual dredge is going to come back with creeping chills and all of those fun toys that we've we talked about so many times? People have been hitting the brewing on how to fix this deck without Bridge from Below very, very fast. I mean, we've already seen a number of decks pop up in the Dive Down Nation chat. Uh, we've seen some online and on Twitter. There was even the... Uh, so I just want to give quick highlights of a couple of these because I do think there's a good chance that the the core of Hogak plus Altered Dementia will be something that continues to be good. I just wonder if it's going to try to win more often via creature combat and just use Altered Dementia to fill the graveyard for reanimation targets or if there's any way it's going to try to do a, a mill kill anymore or not. Time will tell. So there's three decks that I've seen so far pop up and I'm, I'm not really going to read the lists, but i'm just going to mention the cards that are in them instead a couple of weeks ago a bridgeless hogak deck 5-0'd on magic online i think a ton of people noticed it in the deck dump and notable features of that deck included hedron crab 
and Death Shadow, in addition to sort of the normal package of um, Hogak Vine kind of cards. So keep your eyes out for that or check out that list if you're looking for it. Uh, a lot of people, I think right now, I've seen people talking on Twitter about wanting prized amalgam and on Reddit actually about people wanting prized amalgam in the deck now, which is the first thing that made me wonder, okay, if we're going to play prized amalgam, is this just going to be the new dredge? Is it going to be different than dredge? Is it going to be better? You know, uh, or is the other dredge going to win out? So uh, responding to something Shane said last episode, I've thought about that, where Shane compared the Hogak deck to Dredge, where he said Dredge, you can sort of go on autopilot a little bit or have similar play patterns. And this one, you feel like you have to be on top of it all the time. I do wonder if Dredge is different enough of a play style that two decks can exist at the same time. Yeah, this is kind of what I'm getting at, too. I think that's very possible. It kind of makes me think of, is it Phoenix and Mono Red Phoenix coexisting? You know, they have very similar shells, but fundamentally different in their own regard, too. So there's that kind of overlap that's coming. Is Prize Amalgam going to be good enough? And then the last one was a deck list that was shared by one of our Patreon members in our Patreon chat today. The member of the nation's name is Train. And Train is actually the person who first alerted all of us to the Hogak Bridgevine deck in the first place back a couple of days before it broke on Twitter. Um, the deck list that they shared with us today used two cards to replace... Uh, bridge from below and they were super surprising to me one of them is nettle sentinel somehow and the other one is a card from lorwin i believe called marrow bonar and here's what these two cards have in common well they're both one drops okay one is a black card and nettle sentinel is obviously a green card they're both single single mana uh, cost cards and what they do is they both untap when a black or green spell is cast respectively. So the idea here is you get these cards out of the graveyard and they untap every time you cast a Hogak when you could use them to convoke a Hogak in, in, uh, from the graveyard into play. So it's another kind of infinite loop. That is a spicy meatball. It's a question of what is good enough or too fragile to really be be good as a replacement for this. I don't know if this deck is going to stay tier one. Lots of people I've seen on online are saying that they pretty much believe it will still be good. I think time will, will tell. But I, I will say this. I don't think you should quite start moving your expensive cards from this deck yet because these are cards that I think will always have a chance to be broken in some shell at some time in the future. Sure. And this isn't the only infinite combo that exists in modern, right? That's allowed to be in this format. It's all about the consistency and the speed of it. Yeah. And just if you can interact with it or not. And bridge from below was very hard to interact with once it got going. Turns out cards in the graveyard, not easy to interact with. Yeah. Sometimes discarding cards can be good. Huh. Someone once told me that. Pushes up glasses. So I want to touch on my favorite point from Ian Duke's article, and it'll be the last snippet I read. He writes, our goal is not to eliminate graveyard strategies from the modern metagame, but rather to weaken this version of the graveyard combo archetype that has proven too powerful for other decks to reasonably adapt to. In fact, we believe that targeting Bridge from Below specifically will still allow for other strategies in this style to continue to be a part of the metagame, like the Bridgeless Dredge decks that did well earlier this year at MC2 in London. So this is a really great example where they name names... They basically say they think Dredge is okay, and reading that paragraph, I can't help but interpret that they think Faithless Looting is totally fine. And maybe I'm biased toward this conclusion. Maybe I am, who knows, but I'm here for it. It seems like Faithless Looting 
is a pillar of the format. Everyone agrees to that. And as long as decks abuse it, they might deal with other cards that break the synergies and the combos. But Faithless is probably very likely here to stay. Is that a stretch? Zach, what do you think? As someone who does not play Faithless looting decks, that's something we should be clear about. You do not have a playset or two of these cards sleeved up already at this moment. Like maybe uh, Stan and I do. So I have a playset, but they're sitting in a binder of cards that I don't trade. But they have a... I think I haven't played those cards since four years ago. I don't know. I I think it's worrying that they would quote decks at the Mythic Championship in London, because I don't think that's a good representation of the meta anywhere for anybody. So that is a little weird to me, but I have come to think that Faithless Looting is less of a problem than it once was in that I see less of it in all honesty. And like, once again, in decks like Mardu Pyromancer or Octomancer, I don't think it's oppressive or awful there. It was Phoenix where I felt like it was big, a bigger issue. But with Phoenix being less dominant than it once was and me personally seeing less of it, I've become less biased towards the banning of the card. If it were to be banned, I wouldn't be upset. But I no longer think it needs to be a scapegoat or a sacrificial lamb for modern. I think that getting rid of Bridge from Below, I think that's good. We'll see where this shakes out. And I hope that nothing else needs to get banned. I think that there are certain quadrants of Reddit that are on fire tonight because they're angry. There's somewhere there's r slash faithless looting killers or something like that where people are just posting endless memes about how you know they're done with it. fortunately we haven't seen people saying well i'm just going to sell out a modern because faithless looting is continuing to be around or anything like that i think that card eventually will go i just think that it maybe it's a horizon of years now instead of uh this drum beat every time the bannings come around of it of it happening i just think it's very good it's a super powerful cantrip essentially although it is card card disadvantage it's just you know, there's so many ways to break the symmetry of it. So it's it's clearly one of the best cards in the format. I'm extremely glad that it's here too, because I happen to have three or four or five decks that that play it. But um I just I, I agree with you, Stan, that I would read that paragraph as saying that Faithless is safe for the moment. And that moment could be very long, I think, in their in their minds. Well, relative to the life of the universe, everything is but a blink of an eye. Yeah, that's true. So, hey, I have a question for you guys. What do you think, as as people who are about to go to a Magic Fest and play mm-hmm. some modern, we're not going to play any grand of the, uh, the main events because none of us are standard players in Denver. Uh, I'm registered for the MCQ. That's in about two weeks. Uh, I'm trying to figure out what deck I should take. Uh, where do you think the metagame is going to go from here? Is it going to revert back to something before Modern Horizons, or do you think we're in for something else? That's a very good question. Uh, my hot take at the moment is I think people are going to cut down on graveyard hate because they think all of a sudden they have all these slots and they have more options. So I wonder if keeping with a graveyard plan, you might be rewarded. Okay. I do think it's going to be very similar to what the meta was like a month ago before Modern Horizons was printed. But a lot of the decks that were popular then are just going to be using Modern Horizon cards. I think even things like Grixis Urza, I see that and it still looks to me like the old Thopter Sword War of Invention decks. And even though they're now using these new cards and the same is true with Phoenix using Aria, humans using Giver of Ruins, etc. So... 
I don't know if a new deck is going to have time to break open the format. Maybe Edgar's Elemental Tribal deck will be the one. But I think if you're really comfortable with a deck uh, that you've been playing all year and it's not Bridgevine, you're probably, probably going to be okay in any upcoming tournaments. I mean, this is the advice we always give, right? Play the deck you know. Play the deck that you like and have a lot of reps with. Yeah. Yeah, Dave, use your own best advice. Or at least my own best advice. <laughs> My question is a little bit more just like what what's going to happen. And I'm extremely hopeful that we're, you know, Shane talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about Modern Horizons, sleeve it, heave it, believe it, sleeve it, believe it, heave it. Um, when he said he was annoyed that Hogak was overshadowing all this other experimentation that was going on from Modern Horizons cards. And I think, you know, one thing I've been wanting to talk about for a long time is just under the radar, how many Modern Horizons cards have started to make an impact in Modern itself. And I'm really hoping that we're going to have this moment where we get to see the full kind of breadth of that set and the impact it's had and see some real experimentation for a little bit, even if the experimentation is less about new archetypes and more about maximizing archetypes that already exist. For example, Jund won one of the, the Red Bull untaps over the weekend, which was great, to, great fun to see, I think. And it was highlighting a ton of Modern Horizons cards. It had Hex Drinker and Season Pyromancer and Renin Six. And it was just really fun to see that happen. If you look at it quantitatively, this is a stat I've been wanting to drop the last couple of weeks. There is a project that's kind of popular on Magic Twitter called the ELO Project that is essentially something that tracks uh, really super high-end players' records against each other for who could be the elo leader in rating even though there is an official elo system at this point in time and so the individual who runs the who runs this project their name is adam and we were talking a little bit over twitter because he posted that he also has a side project that tracks the number of cards from certain sets that have appeared in 5-0 deck dump lists and after two weeks basically modern horizons had had the most cards from its set appear in a 5-0 deck dump and right now that number is 86 cards from modern horizons have appeared in 5-0 deck dumps over over time that includes things like um like snow covered land so you could kind of take four off the top there five off the top there but it's still ahead of 10th edition which is a core set that has 71 and amonkhet which has 66 66 cards that have appeared in 5-0 deck dumps so it's already way ahead in the amount of impact that it's had by this particular metric and i, I just think it'll be interesting to kind of remove that shadow of the really broken deck and see what happens next i am super surprised that Amonkhet has had 66 cards appear in modern 5-0 lists. But I think what's worth mentioning is that those cards don't necessarily linger. You know, sometimes someone will go 5-0 with a deck that they get really lucky with and it had a card in their 75 that maybe they sided out every game. Yeah. Sure. Even so, hearing that about Amonkhet specifically is kind of a welcome surprise. Yeah, that's kind of wild to me. I, I do run four Amonkhet cards in Mono Red Prison, though, so hey. Yeah, it's super interesting, and I think, you know, it's just one metric to think about this in, but it was definitely a surprise when I saw that stat going around, and so I just wanted to call it out and uh, thank Adam from the ELO Project for sharing that data with us. All right, that wraps up our breakdown for this week. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we are going to dive into our picks to click for Core Set 20. Which Leyline are you buying? Stay with us. And we're back. So a new set has come out. I, for one, have played the pre-release. 
I've opened some packs. I did not get anything valuable, so I'm coming at this from a very humbled perspective. Got to stop opening packs, man. I keep picking up random packs of Modern Horizons at like Target and just getting punished. So I am done. Well, this is the Lord Richard Garfield punishing you, Dave, for not supporting your local game store. I know. I Hey, I bought plenty of packs from game stores too. Don't worry. Brick and mortar, brick and mortar. So we each picked a couple cards, and we're going to go around the horn and explain our picks and why we think they may be viable for modern. At the very least, if you're looking at this from our sleeve, believe, heave grading system, we're all at least believe on these cards. I think that's pretty much where we kind of draw the line. We certainly wouldn't want to talk about cards that we think are heavable. Some of us may be hotter on our picks than others, but if nothing else, these are some of the places you want to look at when a new set comes out and consider, you know, how you measure new cards and how they could impact an eternal format like modern. Yeah. And let's just talk really quickly about our like rules of engagement here for, for stuff. We we've belabored this a couple of times, but I'll try to give the highlights. The number one thing for modern is cheap mana cost, right? That's, that's the first thing. The second thing is fits into or improves an already existing archetype cleanly and the last one is super powerful, unique effect. Those are the things that we generally use for consideration for our spoilers for a, a standard legal set. Isn't there the uh, additional one of redundant effect or similar to an existing effect? Yeah, sorry. that That's a huge one too. You're right. Yeah, And three mana walkers or less. I mean, it's why Legion of Warboss is so good. It wouldn't be good by itself, but because Goblin Rob Master already exists, Legion of Warboss is playable. There you go. All right, I will start with my first pick, Thunderkin Awakener. One in a red, haste. Whenever Thunderkin Awakener attacks, choose target elemental creature card in your graveyard with toughness less than Thunderkin Awakener's toughness. Return that card to the battlefield tapped and attacking. Sacrifice it at the beginning of the next end step. And Thunderkin Awakener is a 1-3. So, I gotta say... I've kind of become a character of myself. I've become the self-appointed Skelemental guy. Skelemental! <laughs> it's my favorite Iron Maiden song. Yeah, same here. Also, Skelemental rules as a card, not just an Iron Maiden song. And it's really the primary reason why I think Thunderkin Awakener could have potential. Yeah, no, this card seems bonkers. Absolutely. Yeah, maybe it's not even just Thunderkin. Maybe it's also Ball Lightning. There's probably other elementals in the annals of modern that I'm not even aware of. But... Groundbreaker, Earthshaker, Dirt Mover, yeah. Flint Haver. Pant, Collar, Tugger. So for starters, I'm extremely relieved that Faithless Looting is still in the format because I think it's really important for the Thunderkin Awakener deck that a lot of people are imagining right now, myself included. And really the line that I think people all want to try to pull off is turn one Faithless Looting, put at least one Skelemental in your graveyard, turn two Thunderkin Awakener, swing with your hasty creature, trigger a Skelemental, or at the very least a Ball Lightning, swing for seven, and if possible, make your opponent discard two cards. Live in the dream. Welcome to Magical Christmas Land. Honestly, for starters, one of the reasons why I think Thunderkin Awakener is excellent is that he doesn't exile the creature he pulls from the yard. So you can just keep you can just keep repeating this effect. It, it almost feels like it was a mistake. Yeah, Stan, when you uh, typed that in the chat, I had to double check the card because I'm like, oh no, he must have missed that. Oh my goodness, it doesn't exile. Yeah, so 
Other point to mention, he's not even a legendary. So you get to run four of them. You get to run four Faithless Looting. You get to run eight Ball Lightnings. And you're a Jenny Johnny player forever at every LGS. For what it's worth, I don't think this is the piece that was important for Skelemental to break modern. You know, we kind of touched on what's going to be the new deck. I think Skelemental is a good, fun, strong deck, certainly for LGS play. I don't know if it's the next competitive meta shaker and mover, but, you know, I'm delighted to see red-black aggro strategies consistently putting up results in the 5-0 deck list specifically, and this is the type of card that absolutely needs to be tested in those strategies. I really like that this is a card that enables a deck that is still weak to creature removal, and I think I really like a modern format where creature removal will delay the game and make the game winnable for quote-unquote more fair mid-range decks. So obviously a turn two Skelemental attacking is wild, but you know, Path to Exile stops that pretty cleanly. But even Gutshot and Lava Dart stop that pretty cleanly. No, exactly, exactly. There's a there's a lot of answers to it, and it's, it's very powerful, but it can be answered. And I think that's a really good place for Modern to be in. Yeah, so I'm not an MTG Finance pro, but last I checked, this card was pre-selling for less than two bucks. And the only reason I mention that is because there isn't a huge risk of ruin if this card ends up being a dud. You know, it's sometimes the game we play when new cards come out and we're specking on what's good. And you sometimes buy a playset. And, you know, maybe you buy a playset for like five or six bucks a card. And then you're like, oh, no, I'm out 20 bucks. But here you're out the cost of like a master's pack and that's not the end of the world archmage's charm archmage's charm (sighs) one day buddy one day so i'm not sure if the deck is going to run four of these but i'm really going to be surprised if the red black aggro deck remains and doesn't settle on at least one thunderkin awakener i think this is a really good card to look into and even if it doesn't end up in the skelemental deck like i said there's just so many elementals in modern and having a repeatable recursion effect that doesn't even exile the creatures seems like a really powerful card so at two mana i think this is going to be a definite player in the weeks to come boil ricochet trap vexing shusher guttle response molten rain these are but a few of the cards that I have graced my sleeves, have graced my decks, while I desperately seek an answer to blue-eyed control. But no longer do I live in fear, I gaze upon her good light. Ladies and germs, Chandra, Awakened Inferno. I love this card, I did not pre-order it because I'm a big dum-dum, and thought it would go below its pre-order price, and now it is $40, so that's the world we live in. I know, Stan, I see your face. <laughs> so I'll just go ahead and run down what this... Six drop walker. Dave talked about how cards should be maybe a lower mana cost. No, six mana. So planeswalker with three activated abilities and one static ability or just ability. I don't know how you phrase that. And the ability I'm talking about, it, the text that reads, "This spell can't be countered." And oh, what what good text, what beautiful text that is. I mean, it, I think it really makes the card before you go into all your other abilities. But like that line of text is why I wouldn't, you know, outright disagree with what you're saying. So she is six mana, four and two red, and starts at six loyalty. Has the aforementioned can't be countered text. And then her first loyalty ability, plus two loyalty. Each opponent gets an emblem with, at the beginning of your upkeep, the emblem deals one damage to you. This is very good. This is very, very, very good. 
It's just a free like curse of the pierced heart that you can't interact with. I thought the same thing and did not order it because I'm like, oh, it's it's fine. It's curse of the pierced heart, but you can remove that. You can get rid of curse of the pierced heart. You you cannot get rid of this emblem. It is is there like a thorn in your side, and I love it so much. So a big issue with the decks I play, uh, prison and scred mostly, is that there's really one true maximum for blue eye control, and that's the longer the game goes on the less likely I am to win. So at, after a certain point, they're going to have walkers, they're going to have card draw, and I'm going to be in top deck mode, and they're going to have a full grip of cards. Chandra totally changes that. Because if we're in top deck mode, they're taking one damage a turn at least from her plus, and she's resolving. The whole thing is, you're playing her, and she's sticking to the board. Granted, maybe she gets removed after an activation or two, but that's fine, because the whole thing is, you just need that consistent damage on them. Yeah, the more I look at this, the more I go, uh, boy. The more I look at it, the more I wish I had bought them at $12, but hey, you know, who's counting? Only Zach. So the other loyalty ability is a minus three, and it's Chandra Awakened Inferno deals three damage to each non-elemental creature. Also very good. Anger of the Gods has been a staple. Obviously, that exile's a little different, but Anger of the Gods, Soltering Suns have been a staple in mid-range decks for a long time. And this not hitting elementals is silly, and maybe I'll one day lose a game against Stan when he skeletals me and I can't kill it. But you can do this, and she lives, and she can do it again next turn if you have to. So coming down with six loyalty is huge, and it's just it's very good. Then finally, her last ability, minus X, Chandra, Awaken Inferno, deals X damage to target creature or planeswalker. If a permanent dealt damage this way would die this turn, exile it instead. So I think that's really good, and this card just seems so positioned to not like blue-white control in modern, even in standard, because your opponent can play a Teferi, plus them, then on your turn, you can play her, minus her to one, and it kills an Exile's Teferi. That is so wild. Right? So, so wild. And not just Teferi. I mean, they're playing Narset now. They're obviously playing Jace. Oh, yeah, yeah. I I just have a particularly sore spot for the five-drop Teferi, so I thought about ways to remove him before I thought about broader applications. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just excited for this card. I missed the boat because once again I am a stubborn boy. So, we'll wait, maybe I'll I'll make some trades, but I do see a single one of these gracing my sideboard absolutely. I, yeah, to reiterate on that, I don't think this is main deckable unless your meta is absolutely chock full of control. Like I would have to expect half my games to be controlled to run this main deck. But out of the sideboard, especially when you're in top deck mode, like I mentioned, I played Boil, and I used to love Rip and Boil from the top and top deck mode. Like, oh, game's going to get goofy. But this goes from game's going to get goofy to, oh my goodness, maybe I just won. And that's can't be countered. Like It, it creates an uninteractable clock. I just, I love it. I'm Once again, I didn't buy them, but I have, between me not purchasing them in this moment, I have become a full convert to this. I love this card. So, Zach, I agree with you. I think this card... It has a ton of potential. And of all the red planeswalkers you've talked about on previous iterations of our set previews, (laughs) this one is probably my favorite to date. There are some cards in blue-white suite that do answer this somewhat cleanly. So, for starters, Celestial Purge comes to mind. Absolutely. But you do get at least the activation off. Because you play a walker and you retain priority, so no matter what, you play her and get to get the emblem. So you're right, sometimes you do spend six mana to get off a Curse of the Peer's Heart, so to speak, but it's uncounterable, uninteractable. But she isn't guaranteed to survive after you play her, no. You know, also Detention Sphere answers this, but, you know, Detention Sphere is the catch-all answer, blue-white runs. 
and you only have so many of them. I often find that I'm like, I wish I had more detention spheres. And then when I run more, I'm like, I wish I had less detention spheres. It's kind of a love-hate <laughs> relationship with that card. It, no, totally. And Stan, I think what you're saying is a good yeah. thing, ultimately, because I I wouldn't want this card to be like, oh, by the way, Blue Eye Control, there's nothing you can do sure. about this. Like, it, it does create this clock and it isn't counterable, but... I mean, one damage a turn is one damage a turn, right? And you have a clear amount of time for you to win still. So I like that it's a really good answer to them, but it's not like I played this, like just concede that's the right move. Yeah, I got to say, there's been so many games against blue-white where I take them to five life, and then it's just over for me because that's how long it takes sometimes for them to recover and turn the game around. And having an emblem that they can't interact with that kills them over those five turns would have been exactly what I wanted, but... I don't know if Mono Red Phoenix can run a six drop walker. Not when you're sacrificing lands to flashback things now in that deck. <laughs> Three mountains in play. Yeah. Longer sacrificing in the graveyard. And Chandra getting hand. rid of Sunbake Canyon to draw cards. Like, yeah. yeah I, I don't think so, Stan. Well, I approve. If I pull one from a booster pack, Zach, I'll, uh, I'll trade it to you for oh, a card that God. you wouldn't want to yeah, trade yeah. otherwise. I have a whole binder of things that I don't want to part with, but it's sort of, I made a bad choice. Look at this binder now. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind when I buy M20 packs from Target when my, when my family isn't looking. Um, so, so I'll do the next card. Um, I did my kind of normal thing where I t- looked at it from an angle of just what are the cheap cards that are in this set that seem interesting. And so I sorted the whole set by one CMC and took a spin through it and found a couple of hits. And um, so... The first card that I saw that I liked that was one CMC is Elvish Reclaimer. Um, it's a green card, so that's a little out of character for me. It costs a single green mana. It is a 1-2. And the text on the card says, Elvish Reclaimer has plus 2 plus 2 as long as there are 3 or more lands in your graveyard. Pay 2 colorless, tap it, sacrifice a land, search your library for a land card, put it onto the battlefield tapped, and then shuffle your library. So this is a an awful lot of text on a, on a one drop. I think it reminds me a little bit of that, uh, Sylvan card from oath of the gate watch that became Sylvan advocate, Sylvan advocate. That was a two drop with vigilance that became like a five, six or something when it, when you had six lands in place. So it's got this interesting mechanic of elves care about how many lands you have in different zones. Um, I think that the thing that's really interesting about this is that it's sort of a dual, purpose card in the sense that you know you got a lot of fetch lands you got a lot of sacrifice lands and people are discarding cards all the time in modern and so you have the potential of having this one drop that can be a three four which is a really good rate you know what i mean especially if you're on a plan to do that uh aggressively in some way but the flip side of that is that it essentially casts uh, a card called uh, crop rotation when you as it's activated ability and i don't know yeah i don't know how many people are familiar with crop rotation but it is a kind of broken card from legacy essentially um that lets you sacrifice a land and then go search your library for a land card and put it on the battlefield uh now the thing that's really key about this is that this lets you put any card any land card onto the battlefield it's not just basics and so while it is tapped, you can go and get all kinds of different stuff. So this is, can be an enabler for lots of different things. I think a lot of people look at this card and see it as a piece that goes in some kind of value-driven deck, like a, 
like uh, maybe a, you know, a Jund or something like that, where they want to be able to just activate it, get lands in the graveyard, make it bigger, maybe search up a utility land or a creature land every once in a while and kind of go on their merry way. Yeah, speaking of Jund, I think this plays really well with Liliana of the Vale, because when you tick her up, you're usually putting extra lands into your yard. Yep. I mean, that's a great point, too. So there's that kind of nexus of, of options around Elvish Proclaimer. I think on top of that, there's a chance that there's another broken combo out there, some kind, that this could be a piece within a combo deck of some kind where it you know, searches up a piece that you need. One thing that I thought about was that maybe it's kind of a redundant piece in a prime, primeval Titan deck where, hey, if I can't get prime time out fast enough or cheat it out, I can still pick up some lands and bring them into play. And then maybe that helps me get to where I'm trying to go. Um, it could be something that lets you get utility lands like a ghost quarter or a blast zone out in uh, a deck like just elves. If you wanted to play this as a, as a piece in there and have a little bit extra interaction utility that could help you as well. Definitely. I really like this card, and I think why is so much the activated ability, and I think that what we've seen in modern, Sylvan Havoc comes to mind, is that just having a low-cost creature with aggressive stats isn't really enough, because yeah. you have to beat Goyf, you have to beat all these other cards that already exist, you do need that extra oomph, and obviously a 1-mana one 1-2 one that can become a 1-mana 3-4 is good, but this ability to sacrifice a land to get any other land is huge. No requirement on either of them is very powerful. And I think if this were just, you know, the other ability, a one mana one, two that became a three, four, it wouldn't be worth talking about. Yep. And it wouldn't be worth talking about in standard either. Exactly. You know I mean? Because there's, there's not really a lot of ways to get um, lands into your graveyard in standard as well. But I think in modern, you're going to have these kind of starts where sometimes it's just a turn two, three, four, and you're swinging in for three because it, something has happened in a certain order where may, maybe you've played a fetch land and played a faithless looting and then played another fetch land or something like that. Sure. Not that I'm saying for sure this is going to go in a deck with faithless looting, but there's just lots of ways to make that happen. And then the, that's just gravy on top of the tutoring effect, I think. Do you guys think that ability might make one or two of the temples playable in modern because you get to get that scry value from a card that was going to enter tapped no matter what? Or is that a little to best case scenario? I think there are just better, more impactful lands you can grab. And like that's fun, but... If you're activating that ability, you probably aren't trying to get a value engine. You're probably trying to get something that's getting you towards your win. I mean, I think it depends on the deck. Like, maybe you run a couple of those. I think it's more likely to go and get a Raging Ravine. Yeah. Though, honestly, where you're kind of like, okay, I need some more creatures, so I'm going to use this to search up something I can attack with. Yeah, or land with a wild activated ability, something like that. I think the activated ability is particularly interesting with Field of Ruin being played right now as it is in Blue Eye Control and other decks, where... Grabbing a land from your deck might make it a liability to being destroyed. I don't know. I think this card's cool, but I don't think it's, it seems incredibly oppressive or broken to me. I think it just opens more unique design space and more cool decks. All right, so we've gone around the horn once. You guys want to go again? At yeah, least one more time. Gold, absolutely. All right, I'm excited to talk about my next pick. It's my sideboard pick of the day. So last time we did this, I identified Price of Betrayal as a card that could be a strong sideboard piece for black decks to use against Planeswalkers. And so far, my prediction from three months ago or so didn't exactly pan out. But hmm. I think my next card is very similar, and it is Fry. 
Fry is an instant. It is one colorless and one red. It says, this spell can't be countered. I'm sensing a theme here from you guys. Love that text. And then it says, Fry deals five damage to target creature or planeswalker that's white or blue. For the record, I'm not gunning for blue-white control because it's personal. It's just business. But really, that's the deck that this card is looking at. And I really like this as well in red-based decks to side in against Thing in the Ice. Not to mention all the blue-white threats, even some of blue-white sideboard threats. Heck, you can even use this against spirits. Yeah. So one thing I want to point out really quickly is that this is kind of a functional reprint of a card that's already in modern. The card is called Combust. What Combust did was it did five damage that can't be prevented to a target blue or white creature. It also couldn't be countered by spells or abilities. Uh, Same mana cost. It's an instant. Basically, the only thing they added was the ability to target a planeswalker. And that is huge, I think. And I think Stan would agree. You know, this is this is something that takes it from something that pe- that wasn't getting played in sideboards or even sniffing sideboards to being something that I think is viable. The last time I played Combust in my sideboard was when Splinter Twin was legal, and I think that really is what it breaks down to. Well, and eventually it got to the point where you pl- where you would play that other card instead, the one that was uh, one mana, Rending Volley. Rending Volley, yeah, yeah, and and I think that's why Combust didn't see play was because Rending Volley has been around since Khan's block. But I actually think this has the potential to make Rending Volley obsolete, even though it is one mana more. So for starters, it hits Planeswalkers, and in this day and age, I think that is wildly important, especially in modern, especially when blue-white control is at the top of the meta. And as a fellow red mage, you understand how tough it is for red to interact with Planeswalkers. That's why Mimetic Sinkhole was such a, a big get last set, so it's nice to see more damage being able to be directed at Planeswalkers from red cards. Right, and if you're playing this against blue-white control, and they're casting their Planeswalkers on turns three, four, five. At that point, you probably have maybe one or two extra mana that you can spend on Fry and another spell. Likewise, I think it's perfectly good on turn two if a Phoenix player taps out for Thing in the Ice. You know, sometimes that could be a pretty significant tempo swing against the Is It Phoenix opponent. And the other card that this kind of vaguely reminds me of is a Braid, which is one of my favorite sideboard cards whenever I play red decks. And that's another instance where it's two mana, but I never really ever felt like the two mana was a huge tax in the matchups that I was bringing a braid in for. And I have a feeling that Fry can operate under the same principle where, sure, there is a cheaper version that's, you know, slightly less versatile, but that one mana at instant speed and only ever being a two mana spell makes the versatility worth it, even if it might prevent you from, you know, casting two or three spells in a single turn. I think a braid's the perfect example for that because I remember there's a big discussion and a big debate when it was revealed and being tested in modern of, oh, the three damage only be able to hit creatures. That's a big trade off. Is it worth it? And I mean, to me, I run a main deck, you're running it sideboard. It's clearly proven to be worth it. So I think that that trade for versatility is something that people tend to undervalue at first. Yeah, I think it's interesting. If you look at the rest of this uncommon cycle of color hosers, I don't think any of them are really going to come close to modern level of playability. There is the additional note on a lot of these that they can get rid of Planeswalkers, which is something to just keep in mind. But I think that there are better um, versions of each of these cards specifically already. I think the added text or the added ability to interact with planeswalkers is really important and it's that's 
we often talk about how wizards will print really powerful cards then wait to print the safety valves for them and we just had a huge influx of planeswalkers and right away we're getting planeswalker safety valves so i think that's important to note and a good thing overall and of those planeswalkers that we just got the most played ones are blue and white hey what do you know yeah i'm looking at you ashiok whoever you are so that's my pick I, uh, I'm going to pick up some of these. I'm going to double sleeve it. I hope I put it in my deck and get to cast it. Maybe I will eat crow in three months when we do our next set review of sorts. But till then, if you see me out in public and you have a copy of Fry, I will sign it for you. Wait, wait you don't want it? You just want to sign it? <laughs> Shadow signature. I keep black markers and silver markers with me at all times. Oh, hey, look at you. What a pro. Zach, do you have a second pick that you'd like to go back to the well for? So Chandra, Acolyte of Flame, is one and two red, starts at four loyalty, and has three activated abilities. The first one, zero loyalty, put a loyalty counter on each red planeswalker you control. So it's kind of plus one loyalty in that way. And this ability is really neat to me. And why it's so neat is because it cheats on planeswalker loyalty, which is something that is normally very hard to cheat on. Yeah, there's some of Johnny's that do it and a couple of other planeswalkers, but I'm They're not sure not if there's one that it's that are definitely not red, and I'm not sure if it's uh, a zero ability on anybody or not. So this is, once again, maybe quote-unquote magical Christmas land or magical holiday land, however you want to phrase it, but there's a world in Scred where you can land a Koth on turn three, plus him, play Chandra on turn four, zero her, then ult Koth. So you have an ulted Koth on turn four, and that's very, very good. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of like another one of those things that really just hoses blue-white control decks. Exactly, because that's an emblem they can't interact with and like go ahead and, and feel to ruin my mountains. Oh, no, you can't. <laughs> so so bitter. I've, I have not lost a lot or anything to that deck. So I think that ability is very unique in red. And the, once again, the ability to cheat on loyalty is huge. This is a little bit of a side note, but there is a period of time where they were designing walkers, ultimates, with the card doubling season in mind, as to not make it so when they came down, they could ultimate and be broken. They've changed that since then. It's a little restrictive, as you could imagine. But Planeswalker loyalty is such a unique design space, and it's really cool to have cards that can ultimate quickly get there quicker. Her second activated ability, another zero one. Create two 1-1 one, one red elemental creature tokens. They gain haste. Sacrifice them at the beginning of your next upkeep. This one I'm a little less enthused by just because they don't stick around to defend, but it's a zero ability, not a minus. So that's pretty cool too. I think in a deck that uses her, you're more likely to be using the first ability as opposed to the second, but it's just worth noting that this card is clearly pushed in the sense that that's not a minus when typically it would be. Yeah. And then finally, her third ability, minus two, you may cast target instant or sorcery card with converted mana cost three or less from your graveyard. If that card we put into your graveyard this turn, exile it instead. So a little bit of Snapcaster flashbacks here. Yeah, it's kind of like the flip side of Jace Vrince Prodigy in some ways there, where it's kind of like a small, cheap walker that lets you flashback something. It's pretty pretty cool. Right, and you can activate her twice before she goes away. And thinking of the deck I'd want to play this in, which is Scred at the moment, I mean, getting back in anger at the gods with her, that's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Stan, that's it. That's it. Stan's like, I have no interest in your Chandra. I believe Zach's enthusiasm. That's what he said about Sarkon, too. And that's why I make a podcast with you, because your enthusiasm <laughs> is easy to believe. How, how easy is my enthusiasm to believe? 
Uh, you're not enthusiastic at all, Dave. Uh. <laughs> Zach, here, here's my thing. I think she's okay in a suite of Planeswalkers in like Scred, where you have several others around. But in a deck like maybe even Mono Red Prison or other red decks where you might just have her by herself, I don't know if she really does enough work. No, not at all. I totally agree with that. I think she's very much a build-around card or slots into a deck that is built around or has an archetype that would benefit from her, so to speak. But I think that this is definitely one of those cards that you're not going to just put this in your mono-red standard deck and go to town. Do you think this might be the three-drop that your Scred Dragons deck wanted when you thought it was a three-drop dragon, but in fact it was just another Planeswalker that lets you recast spells and... I don't know, make elementals for a little extra reach. I think it's interesting. I think the only issue with that is that build doesn't really run too many coths because you're more in on the dragons. So her sweet synergy with that is decreased. But maybe then you get to run the new five drop Sarkon from war and that fits in. I I think it, it opens a lot of doors more than anything. And I think that I can often have tunnel vision about the decks I play and go, this goes in scred. And all of a sudden, a few days from now, some sort of Chandra mono red tribal goes 5 or whatever. I just think that, trying to zoom out a little bit, this card definitely requires you to devote resources to it and cards and you know sort of a whole plan. But I think the ability to put loyalty counters on walkers without activating them is enormous. I'm more interested in, in it for the double, double flashback spell kind of aspect in some ways. Oh, you would be. I mean, yeah. That just seems like pretty good value, three mana, to be able to flashback a couple of lightning bolts or uh, lava spikes or something like that. I, I don't know. It seems kind of attractive in that way. And plus, maybe you get lucky, and if it's a board with not a lot of pressure, you can flashback one thing and then tick it up a couple of times over a couple of turns. I don't know. There, It's definitely got some powerful abilities. I, I Again, I, I think that last one shouldn't be kind of overlooked either. No, not at all. And I think she would honestly be unplayable with that ability. I'm, I'm kind of downplaying it right now, but her first ability requires so much build around and setup that there are going to be times where you go, I don't get to use that ability this game. I need to play her and minus her to spot removal or save a creature or whatever it might be. Yep. I almost wonder if she could be a tool in like a red Planeswalker burn deck, both being able to recast burn spells from your yard, but also having like an oops all Chandra's sweet going and doing that three drop from origins which taps to ping players and then flips to deal burn damage to players i mean that is a three mana spell that requires some work to turn into a planeswalker but i don't know there's a oops all gideon's deck that like people like to brew with sometimes now we have as many chandras as there are jaces it seems like so who knows Maybe Chandra was the friend you've been looking for all along. Yeah, so I guess to reiterate, I'm not as strong on her as I am as a six drop, even though I pre-bought these and didn't buy the six drop. That's neither here nor there. But I think this card opens a little more unique design space or more unique deck building as opposed to their Chandra, which just slides nicely into the sideboard of some decks. Yeah, I like it. Thank you, I made it myself. Perfect. You designed this card? So I have another one CMC spell for you. Surprise, surprise. This one is a little bit different. Uh, it's called Scheming Symmetry. Who remembers when this card was spoiled? I do. Nobody. Um, <laughs> so Schem <laughs> Scheming Symmetry is basically 
a a um it's an attempt at a fixed version of vampiric tutor in some ways or at least it's a it's an iteration upon that card design so it is a single black man at a cast it's a sorcery so it's different than vampiric in that way because vampiric was a instant an instant and the card text says choose two target players each of them searches their library for a card then shuffles their library and puts that card on top of it and the flavor text reads one for you (laughs) one for me what could be more fair Yes, exactly. And that's the thing about this card is that it is another one of these cards that is low casting cost, has what looks like a symmetrical effect. It says symmetry in the title for for crying out loud. But I think that if there if you can find a way to break the symmetry, this could be a really powerful card in a certain type of, of deck, right? So I think that this is a pretty narrow card. But um, given that it's a tutor, and gives you access to a specific card in in a deck that needs a specific card at a specific time, this can be really powerful. Now, there's a bunch of caveats on top of that because you know you can't use it at the end of your opponent's end step like you could with Vampiric Tutor because that's a legacy staple or really e- extremely good card. You have to find a way to be able to draw the card if you want to use it the same turn that you tutor up or else your opponent gets to draw their card first. So you have to figure out a way to make it work uh, for you. It's also card advantage, right? You pay a card to not get a card back. You pay a card to just get card selection. I played against a Grace's Death Shadow deck recently that was running this card. And they played this card and then they thought scoured me. And that's the type of thing that I think helps a little bit with it. Uh, I think that's definitely one move that you'll see people like this do. I think on the flip side, you might see someone play this card and then opt to draw the card and then and then um, play it or something like that. It's possible if it's something they really, really want. I've heard Field of Ruin mentioned as well as a way to shuffle. So Dave, I want to double check something because I'm not sure if you misspoke, but you said this card is not disadvantaged. No, I said it is. This is card disadvantage. Okay. This is, yeah, definitely card disadvantage because you pay a card, you use a card, and you don't get to a card's worth of value in return. You get to know what card you get next off your deck in return. And that does put you down a card in your hand. So you have to make sure you're using it for something good. So in, in my mind, I think there's a, there are combo decks that would want this card to, to be in play. To uh, Sorry, to use this card to be able to get uh, what they're looking for back as one of their combo pieces. There are decks, for example, where you really want a certain card to go into your graveyard. And maybe you thought scour yourself after you after you pull this or mill yourself with something like a Hedron Crab once you know that your Hogak is on top of your library, let's say, for example, potentially something like that. Um, I'm just spitballing here. I think there's other interesting synergies with this, too, like when it comes to a deck like Mill, right? Mill could totally be okay with somebody putting a card on top of their library because what they really want to do is archive trap you as many mm-hmm. times as they can. And so this is something where the search is not optional. And so you would have to, you know, you would become vulnerable to archive trap if you if your opponent played this card on you. And they would also potentially get to draw another archive trap. So if they can do something like play this, archive trap you, opt to draw the other one, archive trap you again, all of a sudden you get some kind of crazy stuff going on. You know what I mean? Where you lose half of your deck in a single play. Visions from Beyond is typically the draw card of choice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Visions of Beyond, uh, of Beyond is definitely that. That makes a ton of sense, too. I think this card can even appear in some fair decks. Like, I think Esper Control. Like Mill. Wait, wait. Mill's not a fair deck deal. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
archive trap hurts. I don't know. If you've ever turned one, fetch a land, and then get archive trapped, you feel like something's not right. But How about three times? <laughs> I had it happen yeah. to me one time where I fetched and someone archive trapped me three times on turn one. Triple trap. Yeah. My point to Esper Control, though, is that deck will sometimes have the tools to draw the spell as soon or in the same turn as you cast Scheming Symmetry, but also, like, you can just pull a counter spell. So one of the ways you break the symmetry is by protecting yourself from whatever you essentially set up your opponent to do. You know, like, Esper Control can play Cryptic Command. So you get to offset the card disadvantage from Scheming sy- Symmetry, undo whatever your opponent does, and draw, you know, a card. So. Interesting. I mean, I, I think the scenario you're talking about there makes some sense. I would be really wary of strapping this card on in a... um in a fair shell it's just it's it's a big hill to overcome and i think you need to to get a little bit more value out of either making someone search or knowing for sure that you're going to keep them from getting the card in a way that's advantageous to your plan so i could be wrong but it feels a little sketchy to me in those kind of contexts i have a parting thought on this um is mill maybe a sort of a combo deck then because you're trying to consistently get one sort of card and it's not a fair mid-range deck you're trying to get archive trap or maybe mission briefing if you use all your archive traps something to that effect but it just feels to me that that'd be a good fit in there but it's not a mid-range deck no it's definitely a combo deck yeah my feeling has been in the last year or so basically ever since that fake snapcaster mage got printed and field of ruin got printed mission briefing yeah thanks yes that as Mill has gotten like a little better and a little bit less of a meme, it's become more of a combo deck. And that's kind of gone hand in hand with what's making that strategy like a little bit more viable. I would love to do a Mill dive down soon. I'm alone in that, I see, but that's okay. Bonus app. <laughs> Solo Zach up. Yeah, I mean, next stretch goal is bonus apps. So yeah. let's let's talk about it. It's just me alone playing Mill chain smoking. Yeah. While the three co hosts of yours are like standing behind you, just shaking their heads. Shake that misplay. That's not right. <laughs> Why don't no, you, you just mission, play better cards? You, <laughs> <laughs> you mission briefing and then you glimpse the unknown or whatever. Glimpse, glimpse the, the unthinkable. unthinkable. Yeah. God. Sorry. I am uniquely prepared for this. But Zach, I. I I think I might even enjoy doing a dive down like that with you. Just this is a total tangent, but I feel like mill is one of those strategies that keeps getting incrementally better. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that because it is such like a kitchen table favorite, people sort of relegated to that when really it's been getting better and better and bit by bit, like you said. It's definitely a tier two deck. I mean, I don't I think it's well above kitchen table in that way. You know, well, I mean, it, it's definitely like right below the decks that you could see all over the place. Like, it's definitely a deck that someone could pilot to a, a, a high, uh, high finish, and that wouldn't surprise me too much. Yeah, I think our patron Craig, not so meek Mill, is going to be happy to hear us spending this much time talking about his pet deck. Craig, get at us and tell us what you think about scheming symmetry. Maybe there's no space <laughs> for it. I don't know. He, he's already typing the response. <laughs> yeah. Do you guys want to do... Uh, we got through these pretty fast. Do you guys want to do lightning round? Sure. Third cards, unprecedented. Just a little bit of, a little bit of a, a thoughts and a, a kind of quick package. Yeah, so my quick lightning round pick, Leyline of Abundance. That's right, folks. Don't sleep. Two, green, green. 
Leyline Enchantment, if it's in your opening hand, you get to put it on the battlefield for free. Or, you know, begin the game with it on the battlefield, but same thing. Turn zero actions. Right. Yeah. And then it reads, whenever you tap a creature for mana, add an additional green, as well as six green green to put a 1-1 one, one counter on each creature you control. I think this could potentially set up some really broken ramp strategies. I think elves players are probably going to start testing with this as soon as possible because having this out before you do your turn one, you know, elvish visionary or Llanowar elves and just like start setting up massive big mana plays as early as turns two, I think could give this card some potential. My main concern with it is whether or not it like dilutes that strategy quite a bit um, because you you know, Elves decks are pretty fine-tuned these days. So as Shane would ask, what are you cutting out to make room for this? You know, having some turn zero tool that could potentially give you, you know, options for ramp as well as build up your board, you know, to be fairly wide and large seems but seems possible. I like it. It just feels like it's one of those cards that somebody smarter than us will break, right? Oh, yeah. Zach, do you have a lightning lightning round pick? Does it involve fire or lightning? Mm, it involves uh, the same woman I've been talking about all night, Chandra. So I'm talking about Chandra's Regulator, which is one in a red for a legendary artifact. Whenever you activate a loyalty ability of a Chandra Planeswalker, you may pay one, and that one is generic mana. If you do, copy that ability. You may choose new targets for that copy. And then one, tap, discard a mountain, or red card, draw a card. So why I like this card is because it is, it's cheap, it's two mana, it has a static ability, and the activated one. And it has Chandra in the name. Mm, you caught Zach, me. who are you working for? Big Chandra. Big Chandra, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, six mana, Big Chandra. I mean, that was my first pick. It's, like, it's on the nose, man. So why I like this is, I think this is what opens up that other red mid-range deck alongside Scred. Where in Scred, you're running Mindstone as your two drop because you're trying to ramp into your four mana, five mana cards. This allows you not to ramp, but to do other things and to filter your cards. And if you're getting multiple Chandra activations off, especially, I mean, that's the dream, but to get off an ultimate twice, could you imagine? Oh, could you imagine? I, I just think that this card opens up further lateral design space or sorry, not design space but deck building space really in the mono red mid-range genre which i'm a fan of so i don't know if this card honestly cuts the chops of being modern playable but i think it pushes up against the edge and if there's going to be a chandra tribal deck i'd be surprised to not see it at least a couple of these in the 75 yeah i mean i think this is a sweet card i it, obviously it being cheap is huge the huge indicator that it might it might be possibly playable in modern you know, I would ex I would expect cards like this to cost. Uh, there would have been an era where cards like this cost like four. Oh yeah, right. And so for some reason, it's two, and it's kind of like a little bit of alarm bells are going off there in that sense. So I th I think it's a cool card. It's nice that it has multiple different kinds of utility. So I can get into it. Yeah, there have been a time when the ability where you can pay one would have been one red mana or two red mana. Right. So we've come far away. Stan, is this one even more suspicious to you as far as far as Chandra goes? <laughs> All right, so here are my questions for this. A, do red decks have the disposable mana to use that first ability? If you if we can use scrying sheets, we can use that. Right, but scrying sheets only exists in one deck. Hmm? Like only only what? Scred is using scrying sheets. 
What now? Moving on. It's a legendary artifact. I wish you could play several of these. I, I, I think this like is maybe a build around in standard. If it makes you know, if it makes way in modern, I will be super impressed. But I eat that crow. I, eat that yeah, crow. I'll, I'll eat a storm crow. But I, I guess I can see, if nothing else, why you save this for last. Because if if we ran out of time, <laughs> That's a mean thing wow. to say to me. <laughs> Sorry, Zach. I love you. I respect you. I believe your enthusiasm. Print. What you don't believe in is Chandra's vape rig. Because that's that's pretty much what this looks like. The little pulling huge yarn. It's yeah. like the uh, the ohm dial on on a vape rig of some kind. The plumes the are massive. Clouds. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> what your joke? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love my jokes. Okay, they're the best. All right, so I have one last card for lightning round, and that card is a card that people have been talking about a lot in both limited and standard right now, and I think maybe has a shot to do something in modern, and that is a little three-mana 1-1 by the name of Risen Reef. What? Have you guys read this card? I've seen it in a lot of brews online lately. Yeah. So, so Risen Reef, it costs one colorless, a green, and a blue, it is a creature elemental, and that's important. It is a 1-1. One, one. And the text says, whenever Risen Wreath or another elemental enters the battlefield under your control, look at the top card of your library. If it's a land card, you may put it on the battlefield tap. If you don't put the card onto the battlefield, you put it into your hand. So this card basically says, every time an elemental comes into play, draw a card. Because there's no fail state for it that is not you gaining a card essentially you cannot miss mm-hmm. Ooh, look at stan's face mm-hmm. <laughs> stan you don't like our value our uh, our lighting round cards so g- tell me a little bit more about why you like this and is it just the fact that it's card <laughs> advantage because if if all you care about is card advantage i think you can get other sources of card advantage well, I mean, I think that there's just a, a ton of elementals in modern. And so if there is some kind of elemental tribal deck that makes sense, I mean, uh, Edgar of Amulet Titan fame posted up a four-color elemental deck today that featured four Risen Reefs. I'm not sure if that's the way it's going to go or not, but there's an incredible amount of cards in here in modern that are elementals. And that goes all the way from something like, um, you know, I want to check this rules interaction really quick, but things like Muldrifter and Shriek Maw, I believe, are both elementals as well. And so you can evoke a car and one of those cards and trigger Risen Reef. So you get to evoke a Muldrifter and draw a card, or yes, exactly, or evoke a Shriek Maw and draw a card off of it. So I think that there's just a lot of, of payoffs here. There's ramp cards that kind of help ramp up elementals and things like that. And I don't know if that's the the shell necessarily that's going to do it but it kind of feels like the value might be there to turn this into something where you could just draw a ton of cards off of it if people can't for some reason can't interact with it and the worst case scenario is that it ramps you to be able to cast even more cards yeah i think this card is bonkers to me just because there is a time where the text would have read if it's a land card reveal it and put it into your hand right and full stop that would have been the end of the text so no matter what, you're drawing a card. Excuse me. And sometimes that card goes into play. Right. Excuse me. Yeah. Excuse me. But this is three mana for a one one. 
And I think that if you're spending turn three for a 1-1 that draws you a card, you might just be dead the next turn. Can I interest you in the card Aether Vial, where you don't need to spend turn three at all? Oh, you mean the uh, Uncommon from Darksteel? Well, this isn't Uncommon from M20, so maybe there's some kind of synergy there. (laughs) I wouldn't lead it, oh, good lord. (laughs) So we're recording this on Monday night, and... As an expert magic player, I'm able to draw conclusions from very small sample size. And earlier this evening, Edgar streamed a league where he was playing his elemental deck. And last I heard, he was 0-4 with it. So I don't think I'm buying Risen Reef just yet. But it's an uncommon, Dave. So you're not going to lose a ton of money if you open it. Yeah. Hey, you know, this is this is my real kind of... I mean, all of my picks, I think, are kind of... believe level and this one has become believe minus level but i it just feels like there's some powerful stuff that could happen with this card and and maybe it's good enough to get there in the right in the right deck well so shane's not here but he did identify a single card and how about we give a shout out to shane's pick and if you want to hear from him you can tweet him yes i think that's great i think he would like that so our very own shane beeps he picked a really good one that uh, i think would have been a really good discussion if he was here but because of his absence we're not going to talk about And that was brought back, the white, white instant. Choose up to two target permanent cards in your graveyard that were put there from the battlefield this turn. Return them to the battlefield tapped. I know I was blown out by this at pre-release. An opponent played this against me. I thought that I had turned the clock back in my favor, and then he just got all of his creatures back. So I think it's a believe at least. But if you want to hear how Shane feels about it, you can tweet him at Shane B. I think we can outline a couple of the scenarios really quickly here, just to, for what people are gonna, are thinking about doing with this. One is you can bring back a couple of fetch lands, right? That come back into play right away, and then you can use them to ramp to basically five mana by turn three, which is kind of like a pretty wild, like double rampant growth essentially that you can do in modern. Another thing is you can try to have a uh, a creature with an enter the battlefield effect, like a renegade rallyer or something like that, leave play and come back, um, and then even you know, Shane pointed out in his notes that Knight of the Reliquary is a card that you can use to get some lands in the graveyard and then bring those back. Um, and so you kind of get to buff them and then bring back like Ghost Quarter and just keep strip mining your opponent in, in certain scenarios. So, not to mention the Horizon Lands where you yeah. cash them in for a card and then you just bring them back with this thing. Yeah. So, it takes a lot of mana to do some of these plays. But I think that there's definitely some possibilities, especially for me when you look at that idea of what could a white centered deck do with five mana on turn three could be could be pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. Look, if you've got mana for Risen Reef, surely you can find a couple of white mana for brought back. You have mana for Risen Reef, but no mana to pay me back. Man, I'm burning a lot of bridges tonight with my co-hosts. We're gonna take a quick break while I apologize profusely. And when we return, we're going to cover a listener question. Stay with us. So almost every week, we ask our loyal Dive Down Nation to submit a question for the Wind Down. And in light of the big earth-shattering band news of this morning, we got a great question from Patron Train, who we actually mentioned earlier in the episode, who asks... What are you going to do with all the sideboard and mainboard slots that just opened up because you no longer have to pack as many ley lines, rest in pieces, spell bombs, etc.? What do you anticipate needing them for? 
And the first thing I thought of when I saw this question is main deck surgical became a thing before Hogak. That was a response to Phoenix. So if Phoenix remains at the top of the meta, maybe those decks will continue to run main deck surgical. Maybe blue white will too. Yeah, I I, uh, I have a couple of thoughts here. I think the main thing I, I'm looking I, I'm looking at, especially as someone who's probably going to pick up, is it Phoenix again in the wake of the the banning news? Is that I'm going to be looking to take main deck surgical out of Phoenix and maybe take it out completely, depending on what cyborg configuration makes the most sense. But uh, I'm going to start looking at humans as being the thing that I want to swing some of my sideboard slots back towards to make sure I have enough creature removal for that particular matchup. And so that's where I think gut shot and, and lava dart maybe get a little bit better um, depending on how things go in that particular context. So I guess my answer is little less graveyard hate, a little more creature removal, as I expect um, that humans will make a bit of a comeback over the next few weeks. This is an interesting question for me, because right now I'm playing a deck that has a wish board, so I don't need to quote-unquote sideboard the way other decks do. So I don't know that I cut my Tormod's Crypt, and it's in there really because of Bridgevine. And like it's good against Dredge, don't get me wrong, but it was in there to combat that menace. But I I wonder if cutting it would be premature and i really struggle with this because it, it took me a little long to bring it in and now i'm wondering if i'm being stubborn by waiting too long to take it out i think you're onto something zach because i wouldn't cut graveyard hate from my 75 entirely you know graveyard decks still will continue to exist relic of progenitus used to be a great card yeah for sure i, I don't think anybody thinks you should cut it entirely but keep in mind we were at what seven pieces of graveyard hate in some decks 75 maybe even eight in different configurations. So I think it's like, hey, if you're going to get back four sideboard slots suddenly because you back off a little bit, maybe less decks are running uh, for Leyline of the Void without even thinking about it. W where does that go? So Dave, your point made me think about what my sideboards have been lacking lately. And it kind of made me realize that while I still had tools for creature decks, part of that is because I like to think of humans as a bigger threat than perhaps it is sometimes. The cards I've been cutting were colorless hate, um, especially stuff that would target Tron. And I kind of think with Urza out there kind of just like quietly running amok, doing its thing, <laughs> and no one's quite sure what that thing is. Um, and Tron... He's doing his thing. No one knows what it is, but it's his thing. Yeah. I mean, his head is severed, but his heart is strong. <laughs> You know, I, I think <laughs> hashtag FTG humor. Good Lord. <laughs> you know, I think Tron is kind of poised to make a bit of a comeback. So I might want to be a little bit more prepared for that than I have been in the last month or so. Can I can I ask one question? Why is Urza in one deck and his lands in, an, in his home in another deck? That seems like kind of a flavor fail. I'm just saying. I mean, the estate always outlives the individual, right? <laughs> Karn got the lands. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Karn's immortal and therefore would get it in the will. I mean, Urza's will. No, Yagmoth's will. Never mind. <laughs> so, oh, I wish there wasn't Urza's will now. Um, blue, blue mana cast artifacts from your graveyard this turn. <laughs> perfect. But yeah, that's a, that's a weird one to me. Anyway. So I have a follow-up question off of Train's question for you guys. With Leyline of the Void being reprinted, I think I've been looking forward to finally picking up a set because they're relatively cheap now. And do you think it's cool for any decks that either run black or, you know, maybe run Manamorphose and can produce a couple black mana as having your entire sideboard graveyard hate suite just being a play set of ley lines? And 
Is there any reason to ever play less than a playset because you want a sideboard for them since they're really important in the matchups when you play them? I mean, you only have 15 slots, right? So I think sometimes going down to three might be worth it if you're worried about other matchups or hinging it. I, I've lived in a world where I shaved down to three to run more Eidolons in the Great Revel, and I can't wait for Dave to tell me why I'm wrong about that, but it's a choice I made. No, I think it's I think it's a fair choice. I mean, I played a, a Phoenix deck back at the beginning of Phoenix, like Mono Red, Hollow One Phoenix, that was running two Ley Lines as like an initial way to combat the uh, the emergence of graveyard decks towards the end of last year, but that deck also ran Metamorphose. Mm-hmm. Now, that was a list that I picked up, and so I, I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about whether that was the right decision or not, but I think the bigger question with Leyline of the Void just becomes, do you really need something that gets um gets them on turn one guaranteed and is a brick off the top later mm-hmm. is it is it so bad that you have to do that or can you run something that's a little bit easier to use more flexible and and kind of just goes from there you know i mean there are games where a relic is better for you right yeah where you get to draw a card or, or something like that it really just depends on what you're up and facing i think going forward given that dredge will probably make a little bit of a return and there's a decent chance that Hogak will still exist. And is it Phoenix is still out there? I think most decks that run Leyline of the Void might still do it. I think it might just be that we back away from so many decks running Leyline and also Surgical or, mm-hmm. or you know, running four Leylines and then also having a one or two of Nihil Spellbottom in the main deck like Jund was doing over the weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, we might back off of that a little bit. Makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think it's still a good investment, especially now. And the white ley line, for that matter. Yeah, if you don't have the white one or the black one, I think it's time to buy them. I'm certainly going to grab them soon. Hey, one question I had is, I have not played against the Urza deck yet. Is it susceptible to Graveyard Hate? Have you guys played against it yet? Or I I haven't had a chance to watch it. No, I have not. And I thank the good Lord every day I don't play against it. Maybe that's the next Menace. Check in next week to see what happens. Yeah, to see how upset I am. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, Grixis Urza is one of those decks that I know it exists because I keep seeing it on Goldfish. I keep seeing it on 5-0 lists. It pretty much just looks like Whir of Invention to me, but this Goblin Engineer tech makes me wonder if it has an access that I'm just not respecting adequately enough. It's definitely a deck that I'm going to pay a little bit more attention to in the weeks to come because I have so much attention freed up now since I don't have to worry about my graveyard all day, or my opponent's graveyard for that matter. You never respect my goblins. When I like a goblin, <laughs> that goblin sticks. I have you over, and I put them out, and you never acknowledge them. They're on the table stand. Just say they look nice. They look nice. I got the collector set. <laughs> Just for you, and you say nothing. All right. Thank you, Train, for that question. If you'd like to submit a question to our podcast, pick our brain on something in modern, you can tweet us at the dive down all one word or email the dive down at gmail.com. If you see us on Reddit, feel free to send us a message there as well. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episode as soon as it comes out every Friday. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to support the show, check out our Patreon over at patreon.com slash the dive down. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And to end this week's show, we're going to do something a little different, and we want to leave you with a parting question from one of our other patrons, and that's Jason, who asks, Would you rather fight 100 fairy seer-sized tarmogoyfs or one tarmogoyf-sized fairy seer?
How you guys doing? You mad at me? <laughs> what? Because you because you dragged our our lightning round cards and we let you talk about fry for 20 minutes Mm -hmm. (laughs) a card you didn't even know was a functional reprint of something else well you see the thing with fry is it's actually different than combust in a way you wouldn't expect 